Lord, we just thank you for this evening. We thank you for this opportunity to come before you and worship you and study your word. We ask you to be with us, guide us, and keep us. And we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. 2 Samuel chapter 22. We left off at verse 34. And up to this point, we've been hearing about David's psalm of thanksgiving and his blessing to God for his keep and protection against his enemies. Uh, he said that God delights in him. He said that God is keeping him and to, keeping him from wicked. And that he, and we left off with him talking about how God is his buckler and his shield and his rock. So we're going to start at verse 34. He makes my feet like hinds feet and sets me in my high upon my high places. He teaches my hands to teaches my hands to war, so that the bow of steel is broken on my arms. You have also given me the shield of your salvation, and your gentleness have made me great. You have enlarged my steps under me, so that my feet did not sleep. I have pursued my enemies and destroyed them, and have and turned not again until I have consumed them. And I have consumed them and wounded them, that I that they could not rise. Yea, they have fallen under my feet, for you have girded me with strength to battle them that rose up against me. Have you subdued under me? You have also given me the necks of my enemies that I might destroy them that hate me. They looked, but there was none to save, even unto the Lord, but he answered them not. So I want to just stop there because David is almost sounding brutal here. <laughs> uh, he's talking about God defending him, but yet he talks about his own defense and this is kind of what I want to look at. He makes my feet like hinds feet and sets me in high places. This is the idea of having the, the deer or the goat's legs that can handle the rocks. Uh, I've seen some pictures of goats standing on a what looks like a vertical ledge and you're going, how in the world did they get there in the first place? And just something about the feet that God has given them allows them to climb these impossibly steep cliffs and be able to stand with confidence. And this is what David's saying. Even in this hard place, God has put him in a safe place. And how many times do we have to be reminded of that ourselves? When we think that everything is bad, there's nothing but trials in our, in our face, we have to remember God is in control and he's got us in a safe place. Or at least the very place he wants us, which is the safest place to be. Even if he wants us to be dead or hurt, he's going to protect us in that process. If we die, we go to heaven. If, we're, if we get hurt physically, he's there to keep us supported. And oftentimes he uses this pain to minister to people. It's an amazing thing to me how often Christians get to minister to people in the hospital and doctor staff and whatever just by being able to tell them God is still in control and I, and I still love him. I heard the story about a guy that was in the hospital and the very first thing he asked for when he woke up was his Bible. He wanted his Bible, and that brought people's attention to him. You know, you're in pain. Most people ask, you know, where am I? Uh, what can you know? <laughs> what am I doing here? And you, your first your first thought was a was your Bible, and uh, so he got to witness to them. You know, so what is our thought when we get when we go through hard times? Are, is our thoughts on God, or is our thoughts on, oh woe is me? The world is usually oh woe is me. But, you know, if our thoughts turn to God and God, what is it you're trying to work in my life? What are you trying to teach me? What are you trying to show me? <laughs> you know, those need to be our questions. God, what's going on? 
our first question anytime we're in trouble is, God, am I getting the just, res <laughs> just desserts for what I have done? Do, do I, have I done something to deserve this? And not to be hypercritical, because we can get easily into this idea, you know, yes, anything that happens to us, technically we deserve. We're terrible people. We, we sin all the time. Anything that comes our way, we, we really do deserve. But God's grace and mercy keeps us from having to suffer everything that we go through. So we look at it and say, God, am I reaping the results of sin? If we are, then we repent. We ask God to strengthen us through the, through the trial, and we go forward. If not, we go, okay, God, what is it you're trying to teach me? How is this, how is this going to be your blessing for me? And all of it will always be my blessing, even if I deserve it. And this is something that, that I've said, you know, Romans 8.28 does not cease to be, be in existence just because I deserve what I'm getting. All things work together for good doesn't stop just because I deserve what I'm getting. And so we, we want to be able to look at that and go forward with it. He says, he teaches my hands to war so that a bow of steel is broken by my arms. Now, this is, this is quite a statement. God teaches him how to do battle. And I think about this. We as Christians have a different way of doing battle when we think about it. You know, we are not out there trying to get revenge. We are not out there trying to get everything the way we want. We, we follow God and how he wants. And he teaches us to war in a totally different way. Sometimes he teaches us to war by being kind to people. You know, and that's, that's kind of interesting. When you're nice to somebody who knows that they don't deserve it, you know, it's, you know, you're not doing it to try to get under their skin, but you see you get, they get it, it gets under their skin. And it's kind of fun sometimes when you watch it and see people and the way they react. They know that they deserve you getting back at them. They know that they deserve anger and bitterness. They know that they deserve this, and then you treat them with kindness so that they don't understand what's going on, and they're looking at you like, what's wrong with you? Uh, how are you going to get back at me? Why are you delaying getting back at me? You've had plenty of opportunities. And God teaches us to war totally different than the world does. And he teaches that the bow is, of steel is broken, on, broken by, arm, by his arms. And here again, I think he's talking about their will, their desire is broken. Not a literal weapon in this particular case, because it's so much fun to watch people eventually melt when they realize you're not just playing games with them. And you watch their hearts change over time. Sometimes we see it in our families when we first get saved and, they, and they're not responding and they think we're, you know, we're just playing games with them and they watch us over time and eventually their hearts often soften and are going, this is real. You haven't given up on it. You haven't, you haven't forgotten and their hearts soften and eventually they start talking to you about God a little bit and I'm not saying they're going to go way overboard, but, you know, they start softening and start realizing there's something different, something changed. And you're, and you're able to break that bow that seems so harsh, that weapon that seems so harsh. And it's not easy sometimes when we get a family member that just attacks and attacks and attacks or a friend that attacks, you know, and they're looking at it, you know, thinking you're strange and they're trying to get you to react in, in anger or bitterness and, and you know, just say, well, you just go to hell. I don't care about you anymore. <laughs> you know, and they're waiting for that to happen. They're waiting for us to, to fall down. One of the things that happens when people give up alcohol or drugs is 
their family, especially you know, if they've done it many times, are just waiting for it to, to stop being true again. Which almost becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. You know, well, I know you're going to break down and, and fall, and um, they don't give you any support in your in your direction, and the next thing you know, you've fallen back into it. Well, here we've got God's strength, so we don't need to. But we, that's the kind of thing that happens. They look at you and say, "Well, there's no way you could change." It. You're talking about being a totally new person. Yep, that's exactly what I'm talking about. God says that anybody that is in Christ is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, all things have become new. And eventually people get to see it and they start really wondering at that point. It may take a long time, depending on how hurt they've been by us. Some people are fairly quick to see the change. Other people, you know, that have seen us come and go and will say, I'm not sure I trust this person yet. And we, we look at this and David says, I can break, the, my God has made it so that I can break this. He says, you have given me the shield of your salvation and your gentleness hath made me great. God gives us a shield and it's salvation. He shields us. He wraps us up. And this is something that I find amazing. God is our defender. He's our fortress. He's our rock. He's our protector. And you think about this. If you've ever been in a major storm, I'm talking a major storm, a hurricane or a typhoon or something of that nature, and you're inside a nice, stable house, it's almost fun to look out the window and see the trees bending over and the rain going horizontal and knowing that you're not being touched by it. It's kind of the way God is for us. We are enveloped by Him to the point where sometimes we don't even get to feel the storm because we just go and look at, wow, it sure is a mess out there. I'm sure glad I'm in here with God <laughs> uh, and be able to protect ourselves. And that's God's promise over and over in the scriptures. He says, I am your defender. I am your shield. I, you know, be clothed in Christ. Be put on the armor of God. All the ways he says it to try to get it in through our heads that we are in him and being in him, we are protected. And this can change the way we look at everything. When I just realize, God, I am protected. You are my protection. You are the one that cares for me. You're, in the, you're my walls, my, my roof, my ceiling, and you can't be blown apart. And technically, our houses can be blown apart if the winds got really, really bad. But God will never be blown apart. He is stronger than anything that is out there. But the next statement says... And, your gentleness has made me great. Have you ever thought about how God is so gentle and how that lifts us up as he's gentle with us? He doesn't give us what we deserve, thankfully. He has got great mercy to not give us what we deserve. And all through the Psalms, David said, his mercies are new every morning. The good news is God does not run out of mercy for us. Now, the consequences may catch up with us eventually, but his mercy, even then, doesn't give us what we deserve all through this period of time. You know, we deserve to be, be killed and go to hell. And as his children, he says, well, number one, I'm going to try not to kill you if you don't, as long as you respond. And even if you, even if you do die as my child, you're coming to heaven. Great mercy. <laughs> You know, what mercy did he show on, 
on Noah and his family. You know, we find out that Noah wasn't all that great a person. The first thing he does when he gets off the boat is plants a, gar- a plants vineyard and gets drunk. You know, uh, he wasn't the most righteous person out there when you think about it, but God said he was seeking him you know, and gave him grace and called him. You know, how many times does God give us grace and mercy and we know we don't deserve it? uses us in ways that we can't even fathom being used. You know, and it's kind of interesting. Most of us want to do great things for God, but we don't even know what a great thing is for God. You know, we just, we think, okay, God, what have you got? You know, God, I want to go on. I want to lead hundreds of people to the Lord. And God says, well, I've got another plan for you. you know, and when thinking about this, you know, how many people, when we read these biographies, ever thought that they were, going to be as famous as they as they turned out to be all they were doing is going to serve God to the best of their ability I, I heard the testimony of uh, the lady who wrote uh, Jesus loves me she thought it was an absolutely wasted song she didn't think it was going to be any any use how many people over the years and the centuries since she wrote it a little over a century and a half since she wrote it have been comforted by that song how many young children have come to Christ because of that song? Well, I can't even begin to fathom how many people have done that. And yet she wrote it thinking, I've wasted my time. It's a silly little song. I can't, I can't get anything more profound out of, my, out of me, so I'm going to just put this song in the, in the book. And that song is ministered to everybody. You know, we never know what we do what we are doing and how it's going to help in the kingdom. And it may help in ways that we have no idea. A little thing we say, something that we don't even think is important, and it just touches somebody's heart and changes them. And we just thought we were just doing our daily business, which we were. You know, okay, God, I, you know, I, don't, know what, I don't know what you put me in that person's path for. You know, all I, all I did is say, you love them, and they didn't respond. And then that night they get saved, you know, because they're touched by what you said. And it can be that simple. God loves you. And it just blows people's minds sometimes to have, hear those words. We never know because God's gentleness makes us great. He is gentle with us, and then he uses our gentleness in return to touch other people. And David was, was definitely moved by God's gentleness. God called him to be king. And you think about that. You know, when we think about that, Samuel goes to Jesse's house and says, Jesse, get your boys out here because I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to find a king in one of them. God said one of them is going to be king. Jesse doesn't even bother to call David. You know, he's told by the prophet, get all your boys. And he goes, oh, David's out there with the sheep. I don't even know if he remembered David out there with the sheep. You know, and he had to kind of be reminded, well, is there anybody else? Oh, yeah, there's the youngest. He's out, in, he's out with the flock. You know, he's always out with the flock. I didn't even remember him. You know, he's so insignificant. You know, he, he, all he does is take care of the sheep. Well, get him down here. You know, how many of us have been in that place where we have been considered insignificant by people, where people don't seem to think anything of us. Who knows what God has in store for us when we're just standing up in obedience and doing our simple things. 
David went out to fight Goliath. And what did, how did it start? Just bold. You know, what is this uncircumcised Philistine that's criticizing God? You know, how can you, how can you soldiers put up with this? You know, that was his attitude. You know, this guy is criticizing God. How come somebody isn't standing up to go fight on God's behalf? And sometimes that's exactly all we're doing is like, okay, God, I'm scared stiff, but, you know, I'm going to be your defender in this situation. You, know, you fill my mouth. You give me the words. And all through David's life, much of his life was just that. God, I'm depending on you. Don't have anything to give, but I'm depending on you. And God raised him up. And it's an amazing thing when you talk to people, you know, you get to know some pastors out there and they almost all say the same thing. I can't believe that I get to get to teach the Bible to people. You know, it's an amazing thing when you really, you know, they may not say it to all their congregation, but I get to talk to these guys and I say the same thing. You know, I feel humbled that I get to teach God's word to a church and I get to preach it being listened to on the internet by who knows how many people and what God's doing with it. And it's like, God, why, why are you allowing me to have that <laughs> blessing? Yes, I've studied. Yes, I had desired, and I knew that he was called me to do it. But still, it's, why do I get that privilege, God? Why, do any, why does anybody listen to me? <laughs> you know, and sometimes you wonder if they're listening to you. But no, I know people are listening. And it's fun sometimes just to say, God, I'm watching lives change. And it's you working through me because I know it's not me. And yet it's his word. Gentleness makes us strong. And God, in a, when we're that way, is the same way. We strengthen others by gentleness. One of the things I have learned over the years is law and rules don't really change people's hearts. You know, it may change their actions for the short term, but it never changes their hearts. Gentleness and kindness changes people over the long term. And this is what David's saying, your gentleness, God, has made me strong. And this is so wonderful. He says, you have enlarged my steps under me so that my feet do not slip. In other words, you've spread my feet out. You've, you've made me get stable. If you have played sports and, you say, and you've ever played sports, one of the things the coach is pounding in your head, keep your feet wide, keep your feet spread apart, keep your feet spread apart, you know, get, get a good base. Uh, you, you study martial arts, it's the same thing. Keep your feet spread apart. Don't, don't get them close together and tangled up. And David's saying, you have enlarged, you have broadened my steps so that I, so that I do not slip. Very important for a soldier as well. <laughs> keep, keep a wide base. Don't, don't get knocked down. I have pursued my enemies and destroyed them and turned not again until I have consumed them. I have consumed them and wounded them and they could not arise, yea, they are fallen under my feet. Here David is not sounding very gentle. And I'm not sure on this one. David had, in many of the Psalms, a very strong precatory prayer. He, he, he basically said, God, go get him, and God, if you're not going to go get him, give me the strength to go get him. David did not always believe that God, God was his avenger. Um, he was always ready to go get him. And this is one of those stories. God, he says, God, you gave me the strength to go after my enemies. And I pursued them until they were not able to stand. And then I kept pursuing them <laughs> until they could not come back. Now, David, on the other side, is a king. The king has a responsibility to his people. And this is very important. David says, 
my people need to be protected and God, I am not going to let anything get in the way. As a father or a husband, a father and a husband needs to go and protect their family and be sometimes very cruel if it comes down to it. You're not going to touch my family. You're not going to touch my church. You're not going to touch my nation. I think that's where David is on this. He says, the enemies, they're my enemies, but they're hurting the nation in the process, and that is not going to happen. Now, I'm the type of person that I'll take a lot of pain and abuse to me. That doesn't bother me one way or the other, but you start wanting to attack my family or the church, and we're going to have a bigger problem. I can take anything. I don't care. I've got broad shoulders, and I can take getting attacked and, and, and criticized and whatever, but I'm not going to allow it to happen to people I'm responsible for. And I think that's what David's saying. I have been given the strength as king, the power, and God has strengthened me to get rid of those that have attacked. Because the attack wasn't just on David. And this is something we have to remember, and I've said this before. If somebody gets angry, most of the time when we get angry, what are we angry about? Is something that he didn't do something I wanted. Didn't make me feel good. That's a wrong kind of anger, because I'm ang- if I'm angry about what was done to me, it will not be righteous anger. If we're angry about something that was done to somebody else, that was weak and unable to help themselves, that might be righteous anger, depending on what I do. <laughs> All right, I can be defending them and even be harsh in that defense, as long as I'm defending them. And what happened to them. But as soon as I start getting any kind of personal in it or getting vindictive in it, I'm crossing the line to a place where no longer am I doing righteous anger. I'm into sinful anger. And I'm finding, I don't know that anybody can be righteously ang- angry if they're trying to defend themselves. Because usually your flesh gets in the way and says, I was hurt. I'm going to make sure they pay. Yeah. It's possible, I guess, to have righteous anger if, on yourself, but I don't, I don't think human beings can do it. Jesus might have been able to do it, but I don't, and he never did. You know, he never went after people for their harm of him. He went after them for their harm of the other people. And I don't believe that you can. If you're angry about something done to you, you're, you're usually acting out of hurt pride. You know, you hurt my pride. You didn't, you didn't treat me the way I expected to be treated. And now I'm going to make you pay. You know, and it might have been the right reason. You might, they might deserve to be punished, but if you're doing it because you're hurt you're probably going to go overboard and probably going to not be righteous anger in there. And here David is saying, you know, they've fallen under me. Verse 40 says, For you have girded me with strength to battle them that rose up against me. Have you subdued under me? You have given me the necks of my enemies that I might destroy them that hate me. And here I'm getting to the place where sometimes I look at this and I'm going, David, this is a little kind of harsh. You know, you're going after them because they hate you and not your people. And I'm not sure. This, this is a section where I read, David, are you just speaking how you feel? And we, where David's toward the end of his life. And he says, I've conquered all of my enemies. And at the end of his life, remember, he managed to get away from Saul without having to kill Saul. He comes in, he, he builds a kingdom. Then he commits a major cr- crime against God with the adultery with Bathsheba and the murder of Uriah. And the punishment that he has is that the sword will never leave his house. And we see Absalom rise up against him. We see all kinds of activities going in 
that challenged David. We see enemies coming in from, the, from around the nations. David went from having military victory and peace around him to having to fight for his, his life and his country's life. All because of the sin. The big sin. God forgave him. Both those offenses that he committed were capital offenses. Adultery and murder were capital offenses under the law. God forgave him. He didn't make him die. But he made life pretty miserable for him. And you know, for, you know, how hard would it have been for David? Every time something happened in the kingdom, he had to be thinking, this is my fault. Absalom rises up against him. It's my fault that my son's coming against me. You know, this king is coming against me. It's my fault because, I, because of my murder of Uriah. Yes, God, you let him live. You know, the, the actual living might have been worse than if he had been killed. Because you know, his penalty would have been over. He wouldn't have had to have suffered for the rest of his life. And you know, sometimes I wonder if God's mercy of not taking us home is all that, all, all that it's cracked up to be sometimes. Yes, he's still going to give us strength, but you know, we're going to realize that a lot of what we go through is because we're reaping what we have sown. We get into a major accident because we're being stupid and we break some bones and, and uh, stuff and, and then we're going to be in pain. So you suffer while you're healing, but then you really start suffering later on when you get the arthritis and the, and, the, and the lack of motion and everything in there because, you, and, you know, because of the injury on it. And you know, long-term suffering from the consequences of sin. God takes the short-term saying you deserve death and may even minimize some of the pain and suffering, but there's always a long-term suffering for the consequence of sin. At the very least, our conscience bothers us because we have such a hard time forgiving ourselves. And that is sad also because if God forgives us, we have to be able to forgive ourselves. And that's hard to do for a lot of people. I've heard it from so many people, I, I just can't forgive myself. And they live in misery for the rest of their life because they can't forgive themselves or they can't forgive somebody who did something against them. And it's like, God forgives. If we're his child, we must forgive. We are going to be terribly miserable if we don't learn to forgive. And that doesn't mean we become a doormat for people to keep, keep abusing us, but we do have to say, you're forgiven. You're forgiven. And not hold it against them. Not be thinking about it. Most of us will say we forgive somebody and then we think about it. Or we speak to others about it. Well, you need to be careful around so-and-so. They're not, they're not very trustworthy. I haven't forgiven that person. You know, I'm bad-mouthing them to other people. Or let me tell you about so-and-so. This is what they did to me 28 years ago. They haven't been mean since then, but 28 years ago they did this to me. You know, then it might only be a week ago or something, but still, have we forgiven them if we still remember it and we're talking to others about it? Or even worse, we're always thinking about it. Well, you know, this person was so mean to me last, last year, and I'm not, and yeah, I've forgiven them, but I just can't forget it. I'm going to keep dwelling on it. I'm going to bring it to the forefront of my mind every day for the rest of my life so that I can't forget about it. And we think about this. People go, I can't forget something. Well, it's easy to forget something. Quit thinking about it and put something else in its place. Yeah, you know, it's really easy to forget something. 
but the most important part is we have to come up with the fact that we have to put something else in its place. If you're trying to quit some sin and all you're thinking about is not doing that sin, you're going to end up doing that sin. You have to put something else in its place. What is that something else best? His word. <laughs> doing something good for somebody, especially maybe doing something good for the person that you're angry with. Because God will put it, your love in, love in your heart for them. So it's very important that we do all these things. David was vindictive. I think he was a vindictive person in many cases. He was a man of war. When he asked God to build the temple, God says, no, you have blood on your hands. And I don't necessarily think he was talking about Uriah. I think he was talking about David, I believe, enjoyed war. He didn't just go to war for the sake of having war. You read, you read what he goes, and it sounds like he enjoyed the battles. And God is saying, no, you're not, you're not the man with the right heart for this. And uh, going forward from that. It says you, verse 42, they looked, but there was none to save, even unto the Lord, but he answered them not. I kind of think this is interesting. He's saying, my enemies, they looked around and they even looked to you occasionally. And this is something I'm not sure exactly what he's saying. Did, is he saying that they just looked at him with words without really wanting him? Because you know what? If you turn to God, he is going to forgive and he is going to help bring down the uh, consequences. But David, I think, is saying, because how many people will turn to God in the middle of, a, of the foxhole conversion? God, if you protect me, if I live through this, I will, I will serve you the rest of my life. And then they immediately forget it as soon as, as soon as it's over. Many people have done that even in their Christian walk. God, if you just get me out of this trouble, I will be the Sunday school teacher, a pastor, or whatever, you know, make their promise to God, and then as soon as God delivers them, totally forget their promise. And here I think that's the type of people God is, that David's talking about. Yeah, they, they look to you, God, but you didn't deliver them. Yeah, uh, but that would have been his heart. You know, this was the heart of the Jews, Jewish people in all. If you're not a Jew, you were worthless. You couldn't find God if you weren't a Jew. And if you did, there was something strange and unusual about that situation. You know, they, they had people that proselytized to them and became a Jew, but they would not let people worship God unless they became Jews. And their, their attitude was that God created Jews and he, and he created fuel for hell. If you weren't a Jew, you were fuel for hell was their attitude. You know, and they didn't really, you know, a proselyte was kind of a second-class Jewish citizen, you know, that was, but you know, to me, it should have been, an, you know, it's such a blessing to, this person wants to be a Jew? This person wants to follow God? It should have been a great blessing. It's kind of like us as Christians. Our attitude should be, this person accepted Jesus. They're going to heaven. But you know, even in many Christian circles, I've seen people, oh, that person got saved. I can't believe that person got saved. I bet they're going to fall back. Instead of rejoicing and discipling them, they can make it life miserable on them. Like, well, that person really deserved hell, and you didn't? You know, and this is the key to this. If we forget our true standing with God is deserving hell, and that his gift of grace and mercy gives us heaven, 
we will treat others in a bad way. Because somehow we think we didn't, you know, God is so lucky to have us. You know, God, you were just so glad, you know, God, you were just so lucky. Yeah, you had to, you had, you had to save me, but you were just so lucky you have me. I'm so good. And that person over there, oh, God, you know, you know I, I don't know how you could have grace on them. <laughs> but how many times have I seen that done, and maybe even done it on occasions without even thinking it through? You know, rejecting somebody for the way they look or act or, or behave at a particular time. We need to be careful with that. Because God didn't create people just to send them to hell. He loves people. He died for them. And he wants them reached out. Now, he knows who's going to reject him. He knows before they're born that they're going to reject him. But he is going to try everything he can to draw them with love and mercy and grace. And he uses us to be those instruments. And hopefully we're not the instruments that drive people away. But this is his goal. But if he knows that he, they're going to be rejected, well, could they change? Well, they would. If he knows, so that means they're never God knows the beginning from the end, so he already knows that they're going to reject everything he does for them. And so they won't be saved. So they won't be saved. Not because he's saying they can't be saved. Yeah, he, he is going to throw everything he can at them to try to draw them. But he's, not, he's going to fall short of making them. Because God is powerful enough. He could make us. Yeah. He could take away our free will and make us accept him, but he won't. Because that's what's sad. Well, but that's just it. The people that stand at the white throne judgment, they will not be able to say, God, I never knew. I didn't know what I had rejected. And God's going to say, here, 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 and list off a whole bunch of points. And say, these are all the times you rejected me. Because oftentimes you hear people, when they get saved, God will remind them of all the times that he had spoken to them in the past. And they'll go, wow, I rejected you so many times, God, and yet you gave me the opportunity. And God will just remind us that this wasn't... Because when they first get saved, you'll hear, and I finally heard for the first time, and that's true that that was the first time they actually heard, I'm sure. But God eventually, I think, shows people dozens of times when, when he spared their life, when people would come into their life and try to speak, try to speak words. Uh, this person would come in and they remember, yeah, there was this crazy guy that came up to me 40 years ago to witness to me, and I, I just blew him off. There was this, you know, I watched this television show. Where, you know, I watched uh, Billy Graham on television one night and just blew it off. And God will say, here, 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 and here. Yeah, same thing, same thing. I could be one that they're blowing off or responding to, yeah. but yes, you're, you're just your simple passing out of a track or a, or a bulletin that is out there you know, with information, just a little simple thing, but yet they reject it, they're blown off God. And that'll be one of the things they'll be reminded at the White Throne Judgment. That person handed you a track. That person shared the kindness, my kindness with you. This person encouraged you to go to church, and you, never, and you never did. Little things that will come up, and God will remind them, you rejected here, you rejected here, you rejected here. God is not allowing anybody to go to hell without hearing the gospel message. Because at that time, they wouldn't think anything of it. But then no, but when they stand before God, 
And God reveals it to them and said, this was me reaching out to you. This was me reaching out to you. This was me reaching out to you. And you rejected it. And this is a big deal. It really is a big deal to reject God. And everybody has that opportunity. Everybody's going to know that they're a sinner. And people do. Even if they've never heard the gospel clearly, they know that they're a sinner and need God. And that need is the one thing that can drive us. If we just say, God, I need your help. You know, oftentimes we think about this, you know, you need this sinner's prayer. God, forgive me, I'm a sinner. I, you know, Jesus, come into my... But a lot of times, a sincere cry out to God, God, I need your help. I cannot do this on my own. And God will say, fine, here we go. Now, now, now you're mine and I'm going to teach you. And he'll put the right people in their path. He'll put the right, thing, you know, right activities in their path. Doesn't mean they're going to keep following and doing things their way. But they have taken that step. God, I can't do it. And what is salvation really? God, I can't do it. I need Jesus. I need your help. Jesus died on the cross so that we could be saved. And there will be many people that are going to say, God, I can't do it. I need, I need you that are going to find themselves in heaven you know, because they finally called out to the right, right one. God, I need you. I need you to be my master. I need you to be my Lord. And without knowing the right words, without knowing the right terms, they call out to God and say, God, I need you. So this is very important. This is why we have so many Muslims in the Middle East that get a vision of Jesus. They're looking for God. They go, God, I can't, I can't get it. I can't get there. I can't be good enough. I need your help. And they're praying, they're praying, thinking they're praying to Allah, but when they say, I can't do this and I need your help, God says, fine, here's a picture of Jesus, go find, go find a, a follower of the book, which is what, what Muslims call the Christians, followers of the book. So, and he'll tell them, go find a follower of the book to, to teach, you, teach you the right ways. That person is probably saved right the moment they said, I, I need your help. They're not discipled until they get to find out what it is that they have done. And there are a lot of people that don't get discipled that are truly Christians. And there are a lot of people, especially in America, that go to church their entire life and know the Word of God inside out, backwards, forwards, and still aren't saved because they don't personalize it. I was talking to a young, a younger, a young man, fairly older man actually, but at the prison you know, just the other day, and he was talking about how he was raised in a Christian home and, and turned away from God. You know, a lot of circumstances and everything, but he never made a personal decision for God during all those years. He was taught. He was raised. He knows the word. He knows what it says. He just doesn't believe what it says. You know, and there has to be that point in our life where we say, God, I need you. I cannot do this. I need you. And at that point, your life changes. And it's so amazing when you listen to the stories, you hear people's testimonies, of when they really recognized, I need you, God. And their life changes. And he turns our life upside down and inside out. And what we thought we knew, we don't even understand anymore. And he gives us, gives us information that we never even conceived of. And says, get the world's thoughts out of your mind. You, know, you don't need to make revenge. You don't need to be attacking people. You don't need to speak bad about them. You love them. You speak kindly. You edify them. And let me work in their life. And it's an amazing way when God steps in and turns our life around, turns it upside down, which is what our Sunday morning services have been about. When God turns your life upside down and changes it. 
and makes it totally different than what it, whatever you think it might be in the first place. The old man's down the road. Huh? Says the old man is down the road, put on the new man. The old man is dead. He needs to be dead, yeah. not just put down the road. He needs to be six feet under. He says in verse 43, Then did I beat them as small as the dust of the earth. I did stamp on them as the mire of the street and did spread them abroad. You have delivered me from the strivings of my people and have kept me to be head of the heathen, a people which I knew not, which I knew not shall serve me. Strangers shall submit themselves unto me as soon as they hear, and they shall be obedient unto me. Here David is still going on you know, with his vindictiveness. Yeah. I almost feel sorry if you were David's enemy, especially after he became king. If he considered you an enemy, you were in trouble because he was going to be the arm of God against you and considered himself that. And unfortunately, I've met people that are that way. You know, I'm God's avenger. I'm going to, I'm going to take care of everybody who's sinning. I feel sorry for them. Number one, because they're too busy judging everybody else and don't usually see how evil and bitter they are. But even beyond that, God's a God of mercy and grace as much as judgment. David was used to be the arm of judgment many times. Other kings were used to be the arm of judgment. But God's general actions with us is by mercy and grace and love. How long did he spend with the people before the flood? 1,452 years before he sent the flood to destroy the world? That's a lot of patience. How long did he work with the Jews before he sent them into captivity? Hundreds of years before he sent them into captivity. Since the flood, he's been dealing with mankind for millennia. Judgment is coming. Judgment is coming. We don't ever want to understand, forget that God does bring judgment. But he is so patient and loving before he brings that judgment. Nations fall after a certain period of time because they reject God. And that happens. Three or four hundred years, God lets nations run, and then when they still won't re respond, he'll, he'll destroy them. Unless they get really wicked before that. But we see over and over God letting nations reign and rulers reign over a long period of time because of his patience. Nineveh was all set to be destroyed and Jonah goes and preaches and gets them a 150-year reprieve because they repent. They didn't stay repented, <laughs> but he gets them a 150-year reprieve before Nineveh is destroyed by God. And you know, we know the story of Jonah. Jonah did not want to go to Nineveh. He knew God would forgive them and they were the enemy of the people. He wanted them destroyed. And that's his complaint. God, I knew you were a God of mercy and that you'd forgive them. That's why I didn't want to come in the first place, he told God. You know, he had a problem. He had a real problem with that. And uh, David says, The strangers of, shall submit themselves to me as soon as they hear, and they shall be obedient unto me. Strangers shall fade away, and they shall be afraid out of their closed places. He says, they're just going to surrender. And I think David understood this. He had a powerful army, and I'm sure there were many armies that just surrendered when David showed up. Oh, we're not fighting this guy. That was true of Rome in many cases. When Rome was conquering the world, they'd ride up on a city, they'd send an emissary in there and say, will you surrender or do we conquer you? 
probably 50% of the places it's actually just surrendered. And if you surrendered, you had to keep a lot of rights and privileges. If you were conquered, you had no rights and privileges. The Jewish people surrendered to Rome, which is why they were able to keep their religion in place, much to the chagrin of Rome, because they, they found out that the, the monotheistic uh, Jewish religion was a pain in the neck to them, <laughs> because they would not accept Caesar, they would not accept the other gods, and kept following their God and, kept, you know, and made life very difficult for Rome. And eventually Rome had to destroy them. And in 70 AD, they destroyed the temple and they destroyed Jerusalem. And they left no stone standing in, on the temple and tore down the walls. All right. Now, the, the, took the stones off the temple because the, the gold had melted into the temple. So they, and they wanted every bit of gold. So they totally stripped down every, every stone of the temple. But God had said, this is going to be destroyed. There will be no two stones standing. And when the Romans got done, there were no two stones standing together for the temple. Total, absolute destruction of the temple. They left part of one wall up that's still out there, but, but the temple was destroyed. And the Jews today are still waiting for their temple to be rebuilt. The third temple that will be in the millennial king, that will be there for the millennial kingdom that will be built with the assistance of the Antichrist. The Antichrist will help them get that building built. And halfway through the millennial kingdom, he'll stand up and say, I am God, you're to worship me. And it says in the scriptures, on that day their eyes will be opened, that they're following the wrong God and that they and they will need to follow God. And for three and a half years, Satan will try to destroy them. And God will supernaturally protect them. And this is very important for us to understand. God is not done with Israel. They've been put on a shelf for a period of time. They rejected him. They rejected the Messiah. And the, the church age started. And the church has been the one that God has been dealing with. But he has not forgotten Israel. He has not put the church in Israel's place like so many Christians try to teach. Israel is still Israel. Israel still has the promises of God. And God has put them back in their nation. They will get their temple. They will finally realize that their Messiah has come and they rejected him and accept him to, for the millennial kingdom as a, as a general people group. But that's in the future. That will happen after God takes the church in a, in a rapture. And he'll just snatch away the, every member of the, the church in one moment, millions of people will disappear. Now, and I don't know what kind of stories the world will tell that millions of people have disappeared. You know, I have some ideas, I have some thoughts, but you know, who knows how they'll, how they'll explain it. You know, part of it will probably be that they, you, the aliens have taken us away, you know, took, took away the bad seed and, you know, that they planted here. You know, might be that all the Christians are in prisons. And so the world won't even know that we've disappeared. The poor guards will. But you know, who, knows, who knows what will happen during, when the rapture hits. But millions of people will disappear. And God will say, now, Israel, we're back to you. Israel, you're my people. Everything is now focused on you. 144,000 Jewish evangelists will rise up and preach the gospel. And God will use them in a mighty way as Israel returns.
So it's going to be an interesting, interesting time. Verse 47. The Lord lives and blessed be my rock and exalted be the God of the rock of my salvation. It is God that avenges me and that brings down the people around, under me, that brings me forth from my enemies who you also have lifted me up on high above them that rose up against me. You have delivered me from the violent man. Therefore, I will give thanks unto you, O Lord, among the heathen. I will, give, I will sing praises unto your name. He is the tower of salvation for, for his king, and he shows mercy to his anointed unto David and his seed forever. David finally gets to where he's supposed to be. <laughs> God, you are God. And this is the beautiful way he says, the Lord lives and blessed be my rock. God is alive. This is very important for us to always remember. God is alive. And beyond that, he is our rock. He cares for us. And we've got to make sure that we never forget this. God is alive and he loves and cares for me. He is my rock, my salvation, and he's a, to be exalted. The Lord that avenges me. This is my greatest strength that I love to hold on to. God is my defender. Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. And this is very important for us to understand that God is our avenger. We don't have to go through what all David did to try to avenge. We just say, God, they're really hurting me. You know, it's kind of like the boy saying, yeah, I'm going to go tell my daddy how you're mistreating me. It doesn't work in this day and age, but it used to work you know, when, when, a, when the elders were respected. And it's like you'd grab that kid by his ear and drag him over to his own dad you know, and say, hey, take care of your boy before... Before I have to take care of them. And if you go back far enough, it used to be you got a spanking at somebody's house, and by the time you got home, your parents heard the news and you got spanked again. And nobody said that parent didn't have a right to spank you. You were misbehaving, and you just got a second spanking for misbehaving. You know, this is where we're at. You know, this is kind of where David's at. I go, finally, he's starting to realize God is his defender. I'm going to go tell my dad. <laughs> my dad will take care of me, take care of you, and take care of this problem. But, you know, we kind of laugh about that, but isn't that exactly what God wants? Hide in him and let him defend us. The thing I have learned over my lifetime is if I try to defend myself, I almost always make a big mess out of it. And things spin out of control very quickly. If I just sit back and say, God, what do you want done? Now, sometimes God allows me to say something or do something. Other times he just says, you sit back and be quiet and watch what I'm going to do for you. And most of the time, it's you just stand back and be quiet. I'll take care of this. God is our defender. And it says in verse 49, And that brings me forth from my enemies. You have lifted me up on a high above them that rose up against me. You have delivered me from the violent man. Literally, David's saying, you lifted me out of the fray. You picked me up. You put me above everything that's going on. You brought me forth or you led me away from my enemies. You lifted me up. The good news that I find in my lifetime is how often does God just lift me up and say, here you are. You're not even in the middle of this battle. 
you know, I don't even want you in this battle. I've got you protected, I've got you covered, and I've got the battle. It's an amazing thing when God takes the battle. We had the battle where God killed 185,000 Assyrians that surrounded Jerusalem because the king prayed. And all he said was, God, I need delivered. And they all went to bed that night except for the guards, and that night the entire Assyrian army was destroyed. A mere 185,000, it said, the angel of the Lord killed 185,000 people. Not the angels. One angel delivered. But the angel of the Lord probably was Jesus, but I, in this particular case, I'm not going to say that yeah, yeah. You know, directly. You know, sent Michael or gave, you know, Michael, the, the, the mighty warrior angel. You know, they stood no chance against him. You know, but God says, I will deliver. I will protect. And it says, I will lift you up. And David says, because of all this, therefore, I will give thanks unto you, O Lord, among the heathens. I will sing praise to your name. I love giving thanks to God before the heathen. It is so much fun. You know what God has done, and you can just see their eyes rolling. <laughs> you know, oh, you're going to bring God again into this thing, aren't you? Oh, yes, I'm going to bring God in. God, God has blessed me so greatly. And you just see them just like, you've got to be nuts. You think everything that happens to you is, about, is, is because of God. And I go, yes, I do. God is my master. He's my leader. He's my, he's my savior. He's my protector. He's my revenger. He is my benefactor. He gives me everything I need. And I get so blessed because God is on my side because of he loves me. And this is so much fun. Give thanks amongst the heathen. I hope maybe you've experienced doing this. You know, hey, you know what God did for me yesterday? You know what God did last week? You know what God did this morning for me? And people just go crazy. You know, because what is their mentality? Usually they think there is no God, or there, if there is a God, he doesn't care about us. And they, look at him and they look at us and our belief about God that really cares for us and they think we're just nuts. And by the world's opinion, we are. The good news is, we don't live by the world's opinion. We live by our own rules that God has given us. And God blesses. You know, I love hearing the stories when you pray for something, you find what it is you're looking for, you find, you find and God gives you just a little blessing. Just a little blessings. God, I really need this. And then we find out how much God really loves us. Yeah. Have any of us ever made a prayer such as, God, I really would like to have this for dinner, but I just can't afford it right now. And then the next thing you know, you either get the money to get it or somebody blesses you with the item that you wanted. And it's like, oh, wow, God, you really do love me enough to give me the little things. Just the little things. And I, I think about this in the, in the military especially the Navy and the, and the Coast Guard, the captain has to be very careful what they say because anything he says he wants becomes an order to the people almost, and they go running out to find it. You know, I don't know about the Army and everything, but I'm sure it's the same way. You know, if the, if the, cap, you know, the colonel says he wants something, they're going to bend over backwards trying to fulfill it because that's, who that's their boss. The funny thing is, God is the one that could, should be able to say, I want this, and we should be bending over backwards, and yet as his children... We say, God, it would be so nice to have this. And God 
oftentimes delivers it to us. You know, and this is something we, we know that God wants to meet our needs. He promises that he's going to meet our needs. But he is a wonderful father that desires to give us wants that aren't going to spoil us. You know, and this is where we as parents had to be, you know, okay, if I give my kids these things, I really want to give my kids everything, but I can't give them everything because that would spoil them. How much can I give them without spoiling them? And God is the perfect parent. He knows exactly how much he can give us without spoiling us. And he will oftentimes give us things that will just blow our minds when we think about it. God, you, you did that for You did what for me, God? God, I just, I just thought that I might like to have that. I didn't even ask for it. And God says, well, here it is. And this is where, the way he is. And then he ends this chapter with, he is my tower of salvation for his king. He is the tower of salvation for his king. He shows mercy to his anointed unto David and to his seed forever. God is our tower, our defense. And he shows mercy. I am so glad that God shows mercy. I'm really happy for his grace too because he gives me all these things that I don't deserve. But you know, I am more and more learning that I am so thankful for his mercy. As God shows me how evil and awful I am in my heart, I am learning more and more the power and the greatness of his mercy. It used to be that I focused on his grace, all the good things he had given me, but as he's starting to shine his light in me and I'm starting to see how wicked my heart really is, I'm really starting to get to where I'm more and more looking, God, thank you for your mercy. Thank you not for not destroying me when I thought those evil thoughts just a few minutes ago or, or last night or when I got angry with that person because they cut me off on the highway and made me have to slow down for five minutes. Yeah. <laughs> you know, thank you that you didn't you know, do this you know, when, I did, when I did this. And we just start really realizing his great mercy. And that's his love for us. And then on top of his mercy, he gives us grace. We fall in love with his grace first because we, we realize we're getting all the benefits. But over time, we start to really realize how merciful he is and how great his mercy is. And David is saying, you show mercy. You show me great mercy because David fully understood that he deserved to die. You know, he had two big events in his life. He goes, I deserve to die. God, I, I deserve to die. I touched God's anointed. He cut the hem of Saul's, Saul's uh, garment while he, while he was in the cave, and he said it smote his heart. Okay? Most people are going, well, David, you didn't kill him. What, what, what are you so upset about? He goes, I dared to touch God's anointed. I dared to touch him, and he was smote by how much that one small act that the world looks at and saying, well, he spared his life, you know, you know, he should be happy, and you were able to prove that you did. No, God doesn't work the way the world does. <laughs> and we really do have to understand, God does not do things the way the world does. And when we try to justify our actions by this is what the world would do, we bring sorrow to God's heart. He's really wanting us to say, God, I want to do it the way you want it done. And then we know we can't do it perfectly, but our goal should always be, God, I want to love the way you'd love. I want to forgive the way you forgive. I want to give mercy the way you give mercy. We'll never get there, but hopefully we can get closer and closer to it and be able to really be an example of God's love to people.
Lord, we just thank you for this evening. We thank you for how much you love us and care for us. Lord, help change us so that we can be examples of your love and your mercy to those around us and keep us in all that we do. And thank you in Jesus' name, amen.